The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. First Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. And I'm just going to take a time out from kind of my intro this morning and just talk to you uh, as your pastor. Um, you know, there's, a, there's a whole lot of pressure on this day uh, for churches and for Christians. And there's almost this pressure that we have to sort of you know, kind of one-up ourselves on this day and create an energy that, that, uh, that we, we, we must muster up. And the reality is there's nothing we can do to, to, to make that happen. The reality is that Jesus is alive. And we can't add anything to that. I mean, how could you add anything to that? He was a dead man who is now alive and is seated at the right hand of God. You can't add anything to that. And so I just want to just encourage you, challenge you right where you are to just take a deep breath and just rest in that this morning. Amen? Amen. So that's what I want us to do this morning. As you're turning there, let me uh, just kind of catch us up and set us in, in some context. John chapter 20 is one of the places where the resurrection is uh, accounted for us in God's Word. In John 20, verses 1 through 10, uh, the Word comes back to the, to the disciples, those apostles, that, that the tomb is empty. And the Bible there tells us that Peter and John, John writes of himself there, and he says of himself, the one that, that Jesus loved. And this is not a, a point of arrogance on John's part. It's a point of he's just overwhelmed that Jesus loved him. And so he says, you know, me and Peter, we ran to the tomb. And he said, the one that Jesus loved, talking of himself, uh, you know, he says he outran Peter. And uh, again, this is, I don't think, a point of bragging, but it's kind of funny, you know, to think about, hey, I beat him. I got there first, you know. And he, and he gets there, and it says that he, he leans over in the doorway, peering into the tomb, but he doesn't go in. He sees the, the grave clothes there. He kind of looks in, and he sees, but there's almost this holy fear that comes over him. That he's treading on something that is just absolutely phenomenal. And he pauses at the door. And Peter, like Peter always did, Peter was quick to rush into things. Peter finally catches up and, and he just goes right into the tomb and he finds it empty. And the reality is for you and I that every year when Easter or Resurrection Day comes around, we eagerly run to the tomb again. For those of us who are Christ followers, who are believers, we run here with the same zeal and curiosity that Peter and John ran to the tomb. We run to this day because we know when we get to the tomb, what we'll find. Things haven't changed in these 2,000 years. The tomb is still empty. No one has produced this grave of Jesus. No one has said, here, look, I'll disprove Christianity once and for all. Here are the bones of Jesus. The tomb is still empty. For us, this is an exciting day, and we, we run to this day. We run to the stone. We approach the stone of the tomb with eager anticipation because we know that it's still rolled away and that it's still an empty grave there because he's alive. But for those who are not believers, for those who may be here today, maybe someone invited you, maybe someone drug you here today, Maybe you're here on your own accord, but you're here out of ritual or, or ceremony, or maybe you are curious. Maybe this day is not a day where you run to the, to the stone with such eager anticipation, but it's a curiosity. You don't necessarily run here expecting the tomb to be empty. You just run here wondering. You have questions like, 
Was Jesus really raised from the dead? To which I would say to you, as Matt pointed out to us earlier as he read that passage from 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, then those who are Christ's followers who are still this day worshiping him, not only on this day but every day of their lives, we are to be pitied. We should be looked on and, 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 and be thought to be ridiculous and, and this be a sad situation because we are following and worshiping a dead man who still lays in a grave. But if he's raised from the dead, this has huge implications. This is enormous, and it's not only for those who are believers, who are followers, that this has implications. This is huge because it says that there is one who has conquered death. That God the Father was so pleased in his sacrifice that he vindicated him by raising him from the dead. And if that happened, then it has implications for your life that one day, will you indeed stand before him? Does he have a right to hold you accountable and demand an answer for your living? For what you've done with his son? This is the day we come to. Today I want to preach a message from 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, verses 4 through 8, where Peter identifies Jesus as the stone. Now, Peter is not here calling Jesus the same stone that Peter and John ran to, this one that blocked the entrance to the tomb. He's not saying that Jesus is that stone, but nevertheless, he's playing with the words here, and he's saying that Jesus is a stone indeed. In fact, you're going to hear in these opening words as I read them, he says, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So let's turn and let's look at our passage today as we approach the stone. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, But in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. And here's the the verse on which the entire passage swings so the honor is for you who believe but for those who do not believe the stone that the builders rejected has become a the the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do let's pray together and then we'll look at this stone that we approach Lord Jesus, we've prayed several times today, but we we turn to you again today knowing that we are so dependent on you to be our teacher today. God, I am dependent on you to use my words to penetrate hearts of dead men, cause them to come to life, and to cause them to see your glory and to value it above all things. So God, do just that today. Speak through me for your own glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. As we approach the stone, we approach Jesus as the rejected stone. It's the first description that that Peter here gives to Jesus, that he is this rejected stone. 
Jesus was and is the stone that the builders rejected. As verse 4 says, he was rejected by men. Peter quotes, turns back to the Old Testament, he quotes Psalm 118, verse 22, in verse 7, when he said, Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected. And so the men of verse 4 of our passage and the builders of verse 7 in our passage refer predominantly to the leaders of Israel, to the, not just any leaders of Israel, but the religious leaders of Israel. You need to know today that what we're preaching when we preach a resurrected Jesus Christ is we're not preaching religion to you. We're not preaching to you, if you'll do this, then God will receive you. We are preaching not religion, but we are preaching the salvation that comes by the grace of God. Here, Peter is talking about, the Scriptures talk about that the, the stone that the builders, those builders were those religious leaders of Israel in that day. They believed, the Pharisees, the, uh, all, those, all those religious leaders of the day, they believed that they were indeed building God's kingdom. However, in their pride and their arrogance and, and, and their own belief in themselves, they wound up rejecting the very cornerstone from God. They threw it to the side. They tossed it aside and said, it has nothing to do with this kingdom that we have envisioned that is God's kingdom. And they tossed it aside. And I would submit to you, I would argue with you today, or or to you today, that it's really no different. That while we may not be talking about religious leaders in historic Israel, we look at a culture today and we look at people that still today reject him. Reject him for a, a number of reasons. Men and women find a, a number of reasons. Not, not everyone. Some certainly believe, but they reject Jesus as this one that doesn't fit for one reason or another. They reject him on the basis of reason. They say things like, it's not plausible. I, mean, I, I'm, I, just, I, I just can't believe in all of these things that are said to be true, that the Bible claims of this Jesus. I don't believe that he was born to a virgin or that he did miracles or he was completely sinless. I mean, who's completely right all the time? I can't believe that he was actually raised from the dead. That doesn't happen. And the reason that many come to that is because we know what we experience in our everyday life. And we come to think that, that that is what rules the day. Let me see it in this black and white. This is what I know to be true. Therefore, that is always true. And so people reject him on the basis of reason. They reject him over the issue of authority. They say things like, I'm going to live my life however I want. And in so doing, they use that little word, that little two-little word, M-Y, my Life, they claim that they are the authority of their life. They say things like, what gives him the right to say to me what I can do and what I shouldn't do? What's right and wrong? I'll decide those things for myself. And so they reject this Jesus based on authority. And people reject him at, at the point of their own pride. People would say, they look at Jesus and they, they hear this story of the atonement that he went to a cross and he died for for all who would ever believe in him and they say not that bad what what have i done that's so wrong that he would have to die for me why should anyone die in my place i'm not that bad 
By doing so, they look around at the rest of the world and they see, they watch the news every night, they, they read the blogs and, 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 and all those things, and they see, I'm nowhere near what some people are. And what they miss is that they're not going to, in the end, be comparing themselves to the person who's on the news. It's a holy God who will be the standard. They reject him. They reject this stone. Jesus says this stone by, by trying to remain neutral concerning him. They say, well, you know, I'll just not deal with him. I'll ignore him. I'll, you know, he's, he's this religious figure. He was a good teacher. Uh, he did lots of good things. He was kind and he was compassionate. But I'm not going to make any decision about him. And by not making a decision about him, trying to remain neutral about him, they reject him. The reality is that Jesus was and is the rejected stone. And this is the point of this very passage. Jesus draws a line in the sand. And he forces us. This celebration of this resurrection day, Easter, as culture calls it, this is a, a way that forces us to look at Jesus and causes us to choose sides, to line up on one side or the other. Jesus draws a line in the sand. And God won't allow any of us to remain neutral about him. In verse 7, that's the point. I've written in, in the margin of my Bible. When, when the Bible there in verse 7 says, So the honor is for you who believe. I've underlined you who believe. But for those who do not believe, I've underlined those who do not believe. And I've written in the margin of my Bible, Belief is the dividing line. God won't allow us to remain neutral about Jesus. He will force us to look at him and to make a call to get on a side. J.R. Vassar said it this way, you can be neutral or mildly fond of Jesus only if you edit him, if you censor him, or remove his outrageous claims and commands. But if you take him at face value and let his words remain as they are, it will solicit a robust response from you of either absolutely yes, Jesus, or absolutely not. We can't have this mild affection or remain neutral about Jesus. We are on one side or the other. Tim Keller said it this way. Tim Keller said, either you will have to kill Jesus or crown him. The one thing that you can't do is just say, what an interesting guy. Kill him is exactly what the religious leaders of Israel did. They arrested him in the middle of the night. They lied about him. They spread false, those false accusations about him. They, they brought those that would witness against him in, in, uh, in incriminating ways. His trial was completely uh, illegal. He was taken to a cross and he was nailed to the cross there and he hung there for six hours on that Friday and he died. And they killed him. They thought by killing him that they had gotten rid of him. They thought, well, we won't remain neutral. We will actually just get rid of him. And they thought by killing him that they had done so. To which I would ask you the question 2,000 years later on this Sunday morning, how'd that work out for them? We're here today because three days later, the one whom they thought they got rid of walked out of that tomb. 
brings us to our next description of this stone. Not only is Jesus the rejected stone, but the Bible here, Peter calls him the living stone. Now, a living stone is an odd idea. If you just stop and think about it and don't just read past words in your Bible, a living stone is an odd idea because stones aren't normally alive. If they are, you should probably go see a doctor. Um, anybody ever have a pet rock? I'll show your age a little bit. Go back to that. A pet rock, uh, for those of you who are younger than, than, uh, than 1975, a, a, a collectible, it was a collectible conceived in 1975 by an advertising executive named Gary Dahl. The, he, he went to, the beach, to a beach, Mexico's Rosarito Beach, and he collected these smooth stones from the beach. And he marketed them as like they were live pets. And if you ordered one of these, if you bought one of these pet rocks, it came in this cardboard box that had real holes so that the pet rock could breathe in the shipping process. And the pet rock rested on a bed of straw so that he was comfortable in his process of, of traveling to your home. Uh, the pet rock, uh, the, the fad lasted about six months, ending after a short increase in sales during the Christmas season of December 1975. So six months is all that just really lasted, yet here we are still talking about it today. Dahl, the, the, uh, the creator of the pet rock, sold 1.5 million pet rocks in six months. Keep in mind, this is before the days of internet or social media. or any, I mean, what would it have been today, right? Sold a a million and a half pet rocks, cardboard boxes, breathing holes in the straw at $4 each before he went belly up. But he became a millionaire in the process. For those of you who had a pet rock, I don't want you to feel ridiculous if you actually bought one of those. I do a little bit want you to feel ridiculous, but I'm not going to call you by name and publicly shame you. But uh, I would just ask you, how, how much did you have to feed that pet rock? Did you, did you have to, in the mornings and in the evenings, take the pet rock out for a walk? When you came home, did the pet rock greet you at the door eagerly, jumping up on your pant leg? See, the reality is, rocks don't live. They're not living things. They're, they're just this inanimate object that lays there, if you will. And Peter here says of Jesus, not only is he the rejected stone, but he's the living stone. Don't miss the significance of this. This is a strange way to say this. It's a strange way to speak of Jesus, but it is not without intentionality. Primarily, Peter's emphasis is on the resurrection. He's pointing to the fact that Jesus is alive. In verse 4, he says, as you come to him, a living stone who was rejected by men, but in the sight of God, he's chosen and precious. And what Peter is speaking of here is the fact that Jesus is alive. He's saying, even though the world may reject Jesus, God doesn't. God looks at Jesus and says, very precious to me. You know how we know that? We know that because of the resurrection. If Jesus is not precious and chosen to God, then I would 
if, if he's just another individual, if he's just another stone, if he's not chosen and precious, then God would certainly have just left him in the grave. But the very fact that three days later, God looks down into that tomb and calls Jesus forth validates him. It vindicates all of his ministry, all of his claims, all the things that were said of him. Not by those who wanted to get rid of him, but all those claims about him through the scriptures and from his very own mouth were declared to be true in that moment. When Jesus walks out of the grave, God says, he's precious to me. And Peter offers wonderful encouragement to to these exiled Christ followers who are his readers. If you've been following along with us in these past few weeks as we were walking through 1 Peter together, he's writing to these Christians who are dispersed all throughout the region. They're dispersed because of persecution. It's, it's It's not so violent yet. It will be. But at the point, at the, at the moment when Peter is writing this, it's simply the, 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 so, the society around him, the culture around him just looks at Christians and says, you guys are just odd. It's strange what you do. It's strange what you say you believe. It's off-putting to us. And it will increasingly become a threat to their way of life. And they will be persecuted at the point of losing their own lives. So Peter's writing to these exiled Christians, and, and he's, he gives them wonderful encouragement to which you and I, if you are a Christ follower here today, we can also draw encouragement from this. And Peter said to, to, uh, to those who had not rejected him but had believed, in verse 5, he says, You yourselves, like living stones. Those are beautiful words. They're beautiful because he identifies Christ's followers with Christ himself. Let me show you what I mean. I think this is what Peter means. That just like Jesus, you will be rejected by the world. But take heart. You're chosen and precious to God. This is good news, Christian. It means that as our culture around us grows more and more increasingly hostile toward Christianity, we must, we need to know, we need to take heart in God says, no matter what the world says, no matter how you are rejected by men, you are chosen and precious in my sight. Your status as a stone is not haphazard. Just as Jesus' rejection was by design, so is yours, dear Christian. As Jesus was raised, you and I will be raised. The Bible tells us that even now, for those who are Christ's followers, that are saved by Him, even in this moment, that we have been raised, that we have this new resurrection life that lives within us. Romans chapter 8, verse 11, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in us. What that means is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in every single one of us who believe to give life to our mortal bodies. But not only have we been raised with this new resurrection life now, we will be raised one day. That Christianity is not just this religion about disembodied spirits that return back to their maker 
That God is interested in redeeming and restoring all of His creation. That in Genesis, when He spoke and the world came into being, and He said, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. And then when sin entered the picture and broke this world, that God doesn't just look at this broken world and do as I did when I was a kid and broke a toy and just toss it to the side. God instead looks at this broken world and says, though it has lost some of its goodness, it is still valuable to me. And I will restore and I will redeem it to myself. We will be raised. Brothers and sisters, I tell you, we will be raised These bodies of ours will be raised and transformed and made fit for eternity in the presence of God himself. It's not something so odd that you, it's not like you walked in this place thinking, I wouldn't have expected a preacher to say something like that. You you indeed expect a preacher to say something like that. But I'm standing here today telling you not just these things you expect to hear in this place. I'm telling you these things that I believe these things. These things are so. These things are true. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as Matt read earlier, he didn't read this part. I just want to read verses 50 through 55 to you. The writer there of 1 Corinthians says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the eternal kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. In other words, You and I, as we are, we're not going to heaven. Not in these bodies. But Paul goes on, he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory, oh, death? You see, these are not things that you don't expect to hear when you come to a church service Do you believe them? Do you own these? Do you look across at a cemetery when you drive past it or or go to a funeral and stand in the cemetery? Do you understand that every one of those bodies that represents a person who has actually believed, trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, that one day those bodies will come up from the grave? They will be transformed and fit for heaven. And reunited with their souls that are at this moment in the presence of the Lord. See, that's the stuff of sci-fi and superstition, right? No, no, no. That's the stuff of our God. That he was raised means that we will also be raised. As Jesus was raised, you and I will be raised This is what it means to be like living stones. But also, we are at the moment in this already but not yet. As we live in our existence on this earth, we are right now being, as the the text tells us in verse 5, being built up into spiritual houses. 
The Old Testament temple was the place where God met with his people. But the Old Testament temple was never meant to be permanent. The Old Testament temple was was meant to point forward to a new temple that would come. And that new temple is the one that many of us talked about in our Sunday school classes today. It's the church. It's It's the believer who the Spirit no longer resides in a location that we travel to. But for the believer, now the Spirit of God dwells inside each of us. And he says to me that it's not only through certain people and it's not only on certain days and it's not only through certain sacrifices that you will have access to me but for those who believe you have direct unhindered unfettered access to me i live in you the spirit of god lives in every christian and every christian has unfettered access to him together we are being built into the beautiful spiritual house of god of which This is Peter's main point of the text. Jesus is the cornerstone. The cornerstone is the most significant of all stones. It's the one that all the other stones are built off of. Some of your Bibles may translate this as that keystone that that would be at the top center of, of the arch, but that's probably not the best translation. The translation points to the fact that he's the cornerstone. He's the stone upon which every other stone in the edifice takes its angle and its line and its cue. He is the plumb line. He is the laser level of this building that God is is building, this spiritual house. The The entire structure is aligned on the cornerstone. Jesus is the person that God is building everything off of. Don't miss the fact that Peter is talking about these spiritual realities that go beyond this language of building a building. That Peter is saying that in all of creation, that Jesus is the person that God is aligning everything to. That all of, all of creation take their cues from him. It's what Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17 is really saying. Let me read it for you. He is the Speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus is the cornerstone of all of creation. So if you're here today as, as a non-believer, you're investigating the claims of the resurrection, but you don't yet believe in it, let me just point to the fact that every single bit of creation, everything you and I know is designed off of, points back to its maker, and that is Jesus. He's the cornerstone. I, I remember growing up, and I, I don't remember who first kind of pointed me to the dogwood bloom and told me the story um, I don't know if it was my dad. I kind of think it was my dad, but it could have been my grandfather, um, one of the two. But I, I remember this, this time of year, every year, you know, the, the dogwoods pop out their flowers. You know, they're beautiful, and uh, I am an allergy sufferer, and I love this time of year, but I hate this time of year because of my allergies, you know. I mean, I, I love to be outdoors. I was outdoors a lot yesterday, but I paid the price. But I remember as a kid being brought to the, the branch of this dogwood tree and 
my father, my grandfather, I don't remember now, but him taking that the little limb off that dogwood tree and bending it down to my view and showing me its flower and showing me how it, it opened up with those four petals into the shape of a cross and that at the tip of every one of those petals was this, this red where it had opened up and pointing me to that, you know, it's, it's symbolic. It's a picture of the cross of Jesus Christ and the blood at his head and his feet and his hands. Now, I don't know where that comes from. A lot of that is, it's, it's, it's nowhere in the Bible. The Bible never said, Jesus said, consider the dogwood bloom. You know, he didn't do that. But my, my, my dad, my grandfather, whoever looked at that and saw in creation this pointing back to the cornerstone that everything aligns itself to him. That everything points back to him as their maker. And I would say to you that that in itself is evidence to point you to the fact that you can't escape him. You cannot remain neutral about him. He's the living cornerstone. And here's what I would say to you this morning. He's worth building your life on. He's worth building your life on. Peter goes back into the Old Testament. He quotes Isaiah 28, 16, verse 6, when he said, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The word put to shame, that little phrase, means that you won't be deceived. When you put your confidence in someone. You put to shame is placing hope in someone only to have your hope dashed. That's not going to happen to you, the Bible says. Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I want to read to you another passage from the Old Testament. I'm trying to kind of move through these, but I don't want to skip this because I want you to hear this. Isaiah 54, 4 through 5 it says, fear not, for you will not be ashamed. You won't be put to shame. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. Verse 10 For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. In that passage, what I want you to hear is the reason that you won't be put to shame is because of the very character of the one who promises you that. You, You won't be left as a widow In this day and age, to be left as a widow brought shame upon you. God says, you won't be left as a widow. I would would take it further and maybe apply it in a more applicable way today. You won't be left or abandoned by an unfaithful husband. Because God's your husband. Look to the testimony of Israel about God, he says. Oh, how he was faithful as he delivered them from Egypt. As he brought them through the wilderness. 
God will be faithful. Romans 8, what can separate us from the love of God? The conclusion there is nothing, nothing will separate us from the love of God. Whoever calls on Him will be saved. He's the living stone. And then the last description, and I'm done. And I'll move through this one fairly quickly. He not only is the rejected stone and the living stone, but he's described here as the stumbling stone. Verses 7 and 8, So the honor is for you who believe. Those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. There are two phrases in this that I just want you to see. This stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. The stone of stumbling is, is a reference to a rock that a person trips over while traveling down the road. You ever been walking through just an ordinary place, flat ground, walking through the mall, walking through school, whatever the case may be, and you trip? I mean, you think, what in the world? Just what jumped up and grabbed my foot? You know? And you always do that like, I, you know, I'm cool. Like, what was that? You, know, you look back to see what it was, and everybody knows you just got lazy for a second, and your toe grabbed the floor, and you tripped, right? It's on you. The, the reality is, Jesus presents this stone, this rock that people trip over. Many people think they can avoid him. They can remain neutral about him. They can just reject his authority. But he still becomes this stone that's in the middle of the pathway that even though you're warned and you're told, look at him, you trip over him. Many people see him as a subject to be studied and debated They see him as a good teacher and a kind person, but certainly not God. They see him as just another religious figure. Nevertheless, he's a stone of stumbling, and they trip over him. This phrase, a rock of offense, was the rock bed that they could be crushed against after they fell over the other stone. So picture walking down this road uh, through Israel and through the surrounding area. You trip over this stone, and... And you fall over the edge and you fall to the, the bed of stone below and it crushes you. You're crushed against it as you fall. Matthew 21 gives us this picture of what will happen. And I, I won't read the, the whole passage that I, I had intended to read. But some some point, go and look at Matthew 21, 33 through 44. There Jesus tells this parable of, of a master uh, who planted a vineyard. He leases it out. The fruit is produced. He sends servants to go and collect what's his. Those that had been tending, the, the, those the, that had rented the, the land and, and grown the crops, they, they beat the servants and they kill them. He winds up sending his own son and they kill him as well. And it's a picture of the fact that God had sent the prophets, that he had sent the apostles, that, that, and, and then ultimately he sends his son and they've rejected him and they've beaten him and they've crucified him. And then the question is posed, what's going to happen to those that killed the very Son of God? And these are the words in verse 44. It says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. If you're here today, this is where I'll close. If you're here today, this is what I want you to hear. 
if you're you're only here and and you're just looking at the resurrection and you're saying, is this real? Is this true? I don't know. I don't know. If you're trying to remain neutral about him and trying to avoid him, if you reject his authority, if, if, if he doesn't mesh with the things that you want to do in your life and you're rejecting his authority because you want to have fun, you want to, you want to be comfortable, you want to have pleasure here, if there's pride welling up in you and you're saying, I'm not that bad. No one would have to die for me. He should never have been raised because he should never have died because I'm not that bad. If that's your attitude toward Jesus today, let me just look at you with all the love that I can possibly muster toward you and just tell you, based on what the Bible is telling us, you're tripping over the stone of Jesus. You're stumbling over him. You have not yet been crushed by him. But the Bible says if you persist in your stubborn, hard-heartedness toward him and refuse to believe. Remember verse 7. This is the dividing line of the passage. If you refuse to believe, if you persist in this, that there will come a day where you will not just trip over him and scrape your knee and get up and go on, but you will trip over him and be crushed and dashed on the rock of offense. You see, there is, there is an answering. There is an account that must be given, and you will stand before this resurrected king. You may not see him as the king at this point, but I'm imploring you to do so. To see his glory, that while men reject him, Stop in your rejection and believe. You will never be able to stand before God and say to Him, God, you're unjust to crush me under the weight of this stone because I didn't know. Because in your mind, you will go back to this moment and you will see this preacher standing in this moment heralding to you and imploring you to believe. We are not here as the Jehovah's Witness at my door this week to invite you to a memorial of His death. We are here to invite you to place your faith in Him as resurrected Lord. So please, believe in Him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I pray, God, that you would take my feeble attempt to convey the truth of the gospel, the good news, and God, that you would supernaturally work through it. God, that in in this place, in this moment, God, as people have heard this sermon, Lord, I pray, God, that you would would cause them to come to life to it. God, I pray today that you would give them faith, grant them faith, God, grant them the ability to believe. And Lord, today that they might find the hope of what it means to be chosen and precious in the sight of God. Lord, for your own glory, in Jesus' name. Amen. 
I'm going to be seated down here on the front. We want to give you an opportunity to reflect on what you've heard and respond. We can't talk you into anything. We're not trying to. We're dependent in this moment on the Spirit of God to speak to you through the Word of God. And so if He's done that today and you need to respond to that, then I'll be here. I'd love for you to come speak to me. If you are here and you need to believe, to cross the line, to to choose a side and get on the side of saying, I believe and I can help you with that, then by all means, come see me as we respond. If today you're here and maybe you've been living your life, you're a believer, you're a Christ follower, but you've been more concerned with the opinions of men and their rejection of you and what will they think than about his opinion of you, and maybe you need to just repent of that, then flood this front and just pray and just confess to him that sin and ask him to help you to find your identity in him. There'll be people in a prayer room through those doors on my right, your left. They would love to, to pray with you. Maybe as Ethan leads us, just sing, just celebrate the fact that he is a risen God today, that he's risen in bodily form. And because he is alive, you and I are also alive and will be made alive one day to live with him forever. Sing to him, whatever it is, respond to him by saying, absolutely, yes, Lord Jesus. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.